1914 was the year that the dumbest war in human history, I think, World War I, began. It was one of these wars that was, up until that point for sure, the most bloody, deadliest war in human history. 20 million people died in the war. Another 20 million were casualties. And it was just one of these unbelievably senseless wars. This is a great example of the foolishness of the human condition. And they would get in these, you know, places where the, the, the front line wouldn't move much. They were trench warfare, and in the middle was no man's land, and it was a living hell, literally. But Christmas Eve, 1914, all along the Western Front, in sections along, Christmas broke out. It, it seemed like all of a sudden, a whole spirit changed, and soldiers, British soldiers, French soldiers, Scottish soldiers, German soldiers, Austrian soldiers came out of the trenches and they met each other in no man's land and celebrated Christmas Eve together. They literally had mass and they sang Christmas carols, they exchanged cigarettes and drink, and the next day on Christmas they even played a game of, played soccer after they buried the dead that were in no man's land. And only for the next day, however, they went back to the senseless chaos of their lives being hijacked by an utterly foolish world. And I think that's kind of a picture, even though that's a dramatic picture, it's a picture of our culture today. Every year we celebrate Christmas. Every year we're kind of given a glimpse into this enchanted story that sort of reminds us that our life can have true meaning and what is truly meaningful in life. And then we kind of slip back afterwards in a sort of a, a brief window, a brief moment. And I think one of the stories, I think probably the most enchanting part of the Christmas narrative is the story of Jesus's virgin birth. But let me ask you a question. Just, nobody's going to watch. Don't look at each other. Just in your own private thoughts, do you think it really happened? I mean, do you think the virgin birth story in the Bible is fable? Or fact? Did it, did it really happen in, was there a real Jesus that was born from a woman who was a virgin at a real time, a real place in human history? Luke is one of the gospel writers that tells us the story of Jesus's virgin birth. But before he gets into any of that, he wants us to understand that everything he is saying is something that is fact, not fable. It's really important to him that you catch he is coming at this story as a historian. So let's read the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. These are things that actually happened, the things that happened, the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses. They saw what really happened and servants of the word. And he goes on and he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, now, he's not doing this as an objective, passive observer. He's doing this as a believer, no doubt. But he is looking in, to, is this really worth my belief? Is this something that, as an educated Greek, I should believe? And so I have investigated carefully. I myself, this really mattered to me. I investigated carefully everything from the beginning. 
the whole story from the beginning. I decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, the things that truly actually happened. It's really important that you understand he is trying to, again, as a true believer, he is being selective of his material. He's writing an orderly account. Every author, whether you're writing a fictitious novel or whether you're writing real history, you have to be selective of your stories. You can't just shovel information. You're selective because you want people to understand the significance of the events as they relate to the overall one story. Luke is doing that for us. He's giving us an orderly account that he has selected so that we understand from the eyewitness accounts, these are the things that happened and this is what they mean. So the whole introduction, you know, this idea of an introduction sets the reader up to understand the significance of the story that follows, to be curious, to have expectations, and to understand the meaning in some way. And so Luke takes 80 verses to describe events that happened before he mentions at all anything that has to do with Jesus. Not a word of Jesus, not a nap happening of Jesus, until he covers 80 verses of introduction. And the pinnacle of that introduction is the story of Jesus' virgin birth. To, To Luke... Understanding the virgin birth is the key, a key, to understanding who Jesus really is and his significance, why he came, what he's done. So let's just get into it. And it's verse we looked at last week. We talked about angels, Gabriel, all that. We're just gonna kind of go on to the rest of the story this week. God sent the angel Gabriel, Luke writes, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And he goes on. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Now, it was really important to God, really important to Gabriel, that Mary named this miraculous child Jesus. And it's not because God just likes the name the way it sounds. Jesus was actually not his name. Jesus wasn't his name. He was never called Jesus. Now, I'm just saying that to kind of shock you into paying attention. But that's true. His name, his Hebrew name, what he would have been called by his mother, by Joseph, by everybody who knew him, would have been Yeshua. Yeshua is what we have now going through languages of Greek and all that. We get to Jesus. That's complicated how. But Yeshua was his name, and you can hear it in the sound of Yeshua. What it means is Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. The God of the Old Testament. The God of the Hebrew Scriptures in this child is saving, is restoring something that has been lost. Yahweh saves is his name. So now that's the first clue, but then it goes on and it says that, Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I was gonna put ellipses there and just kind of skip that because I'm not preaching on any of that. 
But I'm putting it there because I want you to understand, if you're kind of a Bible nerd, and there's a few of you, uh, kind of like me, if you like to kind of dig deep and understand what all these mean about who Jesus is, this is a treasure trove. But here's the thing I want to say to everybody, and that is, you can understand the gospel by reading the Old Testament, but you'll never quite understand the full picture of who Jesus is if you don't understand how the Old Testament was telling us who he's going to be over and over and over again. It's all one story. It's not as if the Bible just sort of picks up afresh in the New Testament and you don't have to worry about that. All that is leading to understanding Jesus. Every story in the Old Testament is in some way showing us something about Jesus. And so the angel, uh, excuse me, Mary says to, to Gabriel, the angel, because she's smart, right? She understands that it takes a man and a woman to create a child. And so she says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. She, so she knows how it takes a man and a woman, and she knows she's, well, this literally says, since I have never known a man. It's been translated, since I'm a virgin. She literally says, how, how in the world could I be with child if I've never known a man? And it's significant because, well, he goes on. Let's just read. It goes on. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, we all live in an age where almost everything is a double entendre. Everything has a sexual euphemism to it. So as you kind of look at those phrases, will come upon you, will overshadow you, it kind of seems like that might be a euphemism for some of the things that were like pagan myths where the gods would come down and have relations with a woman and she would become pregnant with the, kind of the god child. That's not what this is. These aren't euphemisms like that. Even though it might seem like that as we look at them, this is a real super common way that Luke describes the work of the Holy Spirit in all kinds of places in his writings. For example, he uses that seven times. For example, the, the come upon you is the same Greek word, same Greek verb, that when Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1.8, something else that Luke wrote, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's the same exact Greek word. It's not a sexual euphemism. It's a work of God's Spirit doing something supernatural in the life of the person he comes upon. The same thing is true with overshadow. That word is used in Luke chapter 9, for example, when Jesus takes Matthew, uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John to the, up the mountain and he transfigures into white, bright light and, and, and then the Holy Spirit, it says, comes on in a cloud, overshadowing. That word overshadow is the word that Luke uses to describe the Holy Spirit coming over everyone. So what the angel saying to Mary is, is that this is going to be a unique human created by the Spirit of God it's not going to involve the participation of any man. God is going to be the father. God is going to father this child. And so that's why he says, therefore, the child born will be called holy, in the sense of divine, godlike, and the son of God. He will be the son of the most high, he said in verse 32, the son of God here, because God is the father. This is a unique creation of God himself. Now, when you, when, you, when you look at that, 
You might be thinking, well, that's not quite, I mean, that's, he's somebody special. He's a unique creation of the Holy Spirit, and he's, a, he's the son of God. He's holy. He's son of the most high. But is that really saying he's God? And I think the answer is kind of, well, maybe not. You know, there's other beings, as we saw last week, that are called sons of the most high and sons of God. But so, so this is one of those situations where the therefore means, well, this is why it's because the, the spirit of God has come over that God is the unique, God is the father. But what's unique about the son, well, that's something that Luke wants you to put the dots together. We'll get there in a minute, but let's take a moment and go back to Matthew. Matthew's the other gospel that tells us the virgin birth of Jesus. But he tells us the virgin birth of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph is somebody who is aware that the woman he's engaged to is pregnant, and he knows he's not the father. And so an angel appears to Joseph and talks him off the ledge, kind of, so to speak. He says some of the same kind of stuff that Gabriel says to Mary here. But then Matthew, after that story, he just pulls the thread through the needle in a way that Luke kind of doesn't do here in what we read so far. But Matthew says this in Matthew chapter one, verse 22. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now he's gonna quote the Old Testament book written 700 years earlier than Jesus. Isaiah seven, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. That's what Isaiah writes. And so Matthew says, which means God with us. So Matthew's telling you, look, the virgin birth, well, Isaiah prophesied it, but here's what the virgin birth means. It means that God is born in the person of Jesus. God with us. But, you know, you're kind of thinking, okay, well, if it's, if it's that plain, why not make it even more plain? Well, the gospel writers are telling a story because they want you to connect the dots. They want you to discover as you read the story. That's not true for John. John just skips the birth narratives of Jesus altogether and just gets right to the point. The very first words in the Gospel of John are this, where John says, in the beginning was the word. Now that, if you read John, that's his phrase for Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Through him, all things were made. And just in case you didn't get the point, without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John just flat out says, now you know, what, who, you know who Jesus is? God. And in case you have a different perspective of what you think when you think of the word God, well, here's what, here's what Jesus is. He's the one who created the entire universe. Everything that exists was created by Jesus and he became human. That's what John is saying is true of Jesus. Luke Luke's a storyteller. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to connect the dots. And he wants you to listen to the eyewitnesses, listen to the characters as he's presenting them. And so the next story after Gabriel leaves Mary, Gabriel told Mary, your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth sees Mary... Luke tells us in verse 41 that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Luke's way of saying what she says is the Holy Spirit saying these words. Here's what Elizabeth says to Mary. But why am I so favored 
that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So here's, here's what Luke's, or Luke is telling us that Elizabeth said, that to her, her Lord is the same as the Lord. Her Lord is in Mary's womb, is the Lord. To her, what Luke wants you to understand and what Elizabeth is saying is that Jesus is Lord in the exact same way that God is Lord. But you have to connect the dots. You have to stop and think about it. But here's the question I want to ask. Do you think this is all true, that this all happened? That Jesus really was born of a virgin? A woman who's never been with a man? That God's Holy Spirit uniquely created Jesus, that God fathered Jesus, but it's not just another man. This is actually God himself, the creator of the universe, becoming human in the person of Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves? Do you think that really is true? That it really happened? Now you might say yes, but maybe you haven't really connected the dots. You haven't really thought about the implications of that. One of the phrases that Jesus says over and over, we'll see him say it sometimes in the Gospel of Luke, is the phrase, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He would say that after he said something kind of, you know, hard to understand, something you had to think about, but it was really important. Like it was kind of the key to the universe kind of phrase. And Jesus would say this key to the universe kind of phrase, but you had to, you had to really catch it. And so he would just say to make sure you get it, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You know what's interesting about that? I read a book recently on music and the brain. And I'm speaking over my head here. I'm just telling you what the author says, who's, who's educated in these kinds of things. That there's, that there's that question, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, did it really make a sound? The answer is no. The answer is that sound is not something that's out there. All sound is is the vibration of air molecules in a frequency. But there's no sound. What happens is that sound is created in the brain of an animal or a human. There has to be this ear, eardrum and ear flesh, that picks up the vibrating molecules that are in a frequency and it picks that up through the eardrum and all that kind of stuff and through this mechanism and neurological chemicals and things like that. It's a signal to the brain, kind of an electrical signal to the brain. That's all it is. But the brain has learned to interpret that and create a sound, a pitch, a sound, all that kind of stuff. But the sound is not out there. It's in the brain. All that's out there are vibrating air molecules that are completely silent if there's nobody there to hear it. And I think it's kind of like that with the virgin birth, that here's this event that really happened in history. It is out there in the universe and it permeates everything, everywhere, but you have to have ears to hear it. You have to take that that's out there and bring it in and say, okay, what are the implications of Jesus being born of a virgin. What does it really mean? Because if it happened, if it really happened, if the virgin birth is truly real, if that happened, 
Well, what it means is what John said, the, the God that created this entire universe has done something really big by doing something incredibly small. The God that created this entire universe, all the galaxies in the universe everywhere, has become a baby at a planet at the outskirts of a relatively small galaxy among trillions of galaxies. What are the implications of that? What does that mean if it's true? That means that the very, the one who is central to all reality in the universe has come for a reason to, to save something that was really valuable, this something that had been lost, this story that would otherwise end in death. He has come and literally has taken on the, the human condition by being human and literally took on thorns and thistles and dust and death of Genesis 3 upon himself, and he took it into the grave and he completely killed it. And he rose from the dead to begin a whole new humanity because he's a whole new human. He is creating a whole new humanity that is a resurrection that's going to have without sin, a resurrection of beauty, a resurrection of power, a resurrection of glory, a resurrection where there, in a world where there is no sin, where there is no brokenness, there is no war, there is no injustice, there is no all the things that make relationships tough, our jealousy, our pride, our being offended, our offending people. There won't be any of that because it's a whole new beginning, but it's already begun because Jesus has been born of a virgin. It's already in play. It's out there permeating the entire universe. But we may not really want the implications right now in this life because the implications are the one who is central to all reality, your life is only going to have meaning and purpose when he is central in your life. And that's kind of a hard thing because we kind of want to do our own thing. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Luke, Luke for Everyone is the name, he writes this. He's a, he's a theologian. He writes this sentence. He says, perhaps some of the controversy about whether Mary could have conceived Jesus without a human father is because deep down we don't want to think that there might be a king who could claim this sort of origin and therefore this sort of absolute allegiance. But to understand this story is to understand that only by this allegiance are we going to really live this big life that we instinctively know we were created to live. This life of meaning. This life of meaningful life, meaningful work, meaningful relationships. Remember that Gabriel said to Mary that he is going to reign forever. His kingdom will never end. See, if the virgin birth is real, if it's true, that means there's really only one hope. There's one certain future that's going to be true for this world, and that is the risen Jesus is going to bring Eden, going to bring heaven back to earth one day when he returns. And those who are his followers are going to experience that world if he is your king. Here's the thing. Luke wants you to connect the dots, not by preaching at you, but by getting you just to sort of read the story and go, huh, I wonder what that means for me. What it means for you is that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you think this world is going through, and no matter how many things depress you, and no matter how much hopelessness and worry and fear and brokenness and all these things overshadow your life, there is this certain future for you. 
The end of your story is not going to be death. That's just the end of a chapter early in the book. The end of your story is not going to be an end at all. It's going to be a complete beginning. He will reign forever and his kingdom will never end. And that's the implication for you that can completely re-narrate your life right now. Not just in a Christmassy Advent kind of way where you hear the story like the soldiers in World War I and you have a great moment where you kind of got a glimpse of the enchanted reality of it all and you had these relationships of meaning and then you go back to fighting, but in a way that begins to completely re-narrate the rest of your life when you really start to learn to connect the dots and make Jesus, turn to Jesus, the one who was born of a virgin, to be your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray, thanking you that you have not left us in this Genesis 3 world of thorns and thistles and dust and death, but that you have come to save. You have come to be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, to bring all those into a new creation with you. You took all of our guilt upon the body of of you on the cross and into the grave, all the death, all the brokenness, And you will bring resurrection to those who want you. We pray that you help us to want you and to connect the dots and to make you central in our lives, re-narrate our lives with this truth, this reality. Amen.